0: Welcome to Alpha Coding Podcast, an all access pass to medical coding and billing pro tips that help you start your week off smarter. And now, here is your host, Tony L. Holmes.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Alpha Coding Podcast series. I'm your host, Tony L. Holmes. Welcome to episode 47 of the podcast. Today is November 23rd, and I'm excited for today's episode because I invited a special guest to join us. He is a brilliant physician, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. He's going to talk to us about emergency medicine. So before we dive into our topic, it's time for your Monday dose of positivity, the Mindset Monday tip, and it's brought to you by Project Resume. When is the last time you had your resume updated? Your resume is literally your entry ticket to that next great opportunity. Project Resume will design a customized ATS-friendly resume to demonstrate your unique skills and experience. And even better, it's written by coders for coders. Make that investment in yourself today and visit projectresume.net and mention my code, Alpha Coding for special pricing. So our Mindset Monday tip is all about influence. The quote I wanna share with you says, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. And I love this quote. I think it's so important to remember that your ability to influence other people, the effect that you have on other people, how you make people feel when you communicate with them is the most valuable currency there is. So really working on yourself and your energy and understanding the effect you have on other people is the best investment of your time because that is the most valuable currency that there is. So important to keep this in the back of your mind as we get caught up in the hustle and bustle in the day to day. So our guest for today is Dr. Burton Bentley. He is the CEO of Elite Medical Experts in Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Bentley is a board-certified emergency medicine physician and nationally recognized expert on medical liability, informed consent, and complex issues related to medicine, business, and law. Dr. Bentley is a national speaker, published author, patent holder, and frequent TV guest, just to name a few. He was even voted best doctors in America for emergency medicine for six consecutive years. I invited him on the show today to discuss his best pro tips for navigating emergency medicine. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bentley.
0: That was the best introduction that I've had all week. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Oh, thank you so much. So take us back to your days practicing in the ER. What did a typical shift look like for you? A typical shift for me
0: is like a typical shift for the profession. You never know what's coming in one second to the next. So that's one of the things that really drew me to emergency medicine is that continuous challenge and diversity in the practice. So one room you're in with the runny nose and the next room it's a choking baby and the next room it's a code and the next room someone has a broken bone and you're just on your game going from encounter to encounter and really trying to listen Help and do the right thing all along the way, and that's that's always what the appeal is uh, of the profession.
1: Yes, it sounds exciting. No two days are the same.
0: No two days are the same. Um, you know, I I always used to say I had seen everything once, and then at some point you've seen everything uh, six times, and sometimes even more. So it's um, just different shades of calm and crazy in a really fascinating way, and I think that's why you know, no diss to other professions, but they don't make a show called Urologist. And the reason is um, emergency medicine <laughs> just is prone to a lot of excitement, a lot of drama, a lot of good and, and a lot of bad, um, but it's all baked together. And I think it just draws people into it for that intrigue and really the ability to help people at such an impactful moment of their life. In fact, it's a lot like surgery. I always think of surgery as, you know, someone has a problem and you're going to cut it out or fix it. It's pretty definitive, but it's at a really impactful moment in a patient's life. And emergency medicine very often is the same way. And I think that's one of the best parts about it.
1: Definitely. So what's your most favorite thing about practicing emergency medicine?
0: I think it is just being able to listen to someone who is at such a critical moment of chaos or pain or disarray. And you've got a trick in your bag that can help them out. So someone comes in, whether they're having a stroke and we're able to give a thrombolytic and improve them, or they've got a dislocated shoulder and in minutes we've got it back in, or a complex facial wound or fingertip amputation and before they leave things are looking perfect. That's always going to be the most gratifying thing, I think, in any field of medicine, when you can just impact someone. And, you know, I always said, nobody wakes up in the morning saying, hey, you know, this is the day I'm going to get hit by that car. Or, you know, I think what I'll do is I'll go to work and then, then I'll have that heart attack. Nobody says that. So, emergencies are inherently emergent. They're scary. They're unexpected. So, someone is suddenly dropped in an ambulance or brought in and you're standing there and you've got something you can do to help. And again, not that we can help every single person, but when you can, I think that's the most gratifying uh, thing that really one human can even do for another.
1: Yes, that's incredible. And like you said, it's not predictable. So you just don't plan for this type of stuff. So what's your least favorite thing when you were practicing?
0: I would say we could divide that into two answers. The first is just the unexpected nature of horrific things that can happen to people on an otherwise perfectly good day. Um, Sort of just the randomness. One minute you're fine and the next second you're having a thoracic aortic dissection. One second you're driving your car and the next second you're ejected from it. I think just continually seeing how fragile life is and how sometimes nonsensical and unkind that these events can be can really play on you after a while. So again, it's incredible that we can be impactful on the other side of that and help, but remarkably sad when we see bad things happen to good people. And that can be in the context of trauma or just horrible diagnoses. You know, Imagine someone comes in and they think they're just having a migraine, but it's a brain tumor, uh, or they're just not feeling well, and it turns out they're in kidney failure. So just that element, I think, can wear on you after a bit. And, and the nuance of that is that it It really bothers you more when it happens at someone else's hands. So, for example, when someone is hurt by someone else, you know, hit by a drunk driver, senselessly, you know, attacked, those types of interpersonal events uh, really play on your mind. So, again, terrible and sad to have. A horrific acute accident or emergency, but just another tangent to it to to have it occur at the hands of someone else. And I think that that interpersonal component, you know, stabbings and shootings just can really get you after a while. And sometimes, you know, plan your faith in humanity um, in one way. So I think that as a category um, is one of the least favorite things. And then I think the other, and it's, it's, it's definitely just part and parcel of the profession, uh, are the hours of it. So it's The emergency department has no calendar in terms of nights, weekends, holidays, birthdays. Uh, Christmas morning is the same as Tuesday afternoon. The shifts have to be staffed. Patients are coming in around the clock. So it can really wreak some havoc on your personal life, your family, because you're up all night, sleeping during the day, working three nights or working four days, transitioning from a long block of shifts. It's so all over the place that it can create just a lot of personal havoc. But again, people in emergency medicine are inherently tough and spirited, and I think we get used to it. But you were just asking about some of the things on the backside that I'm sharing.
1: Yes. And I think your perspective is is very powerful, and it takes a tremendous sacrifice to go into this specialty. So shout out and thanks to all the folks that are on the front lines, especially in COVID with uh, emergency medicine. So coding professionals that's, you know, the majority of our audience, they get a lot of pushback from physicians when issuing queries and really anything related to coding and compliance. What is your best advice on obtaining physician buy-in for these types of matters? I think
0: buy-in is a great term for it, because absent that, you've got no communication, you have no interest, and it's two people on different journeys. You've got your revenue cycle issues, the physician's taking care of patients, and if they don't understand that, then what's in it for them? Why? And so I think part of buy-in is really engaging a team approach, and there's so many ways to do that successfully. So we can take a a super high ground, which is usually what what I like to do, and that's explaining that the chart, the documentation to support what was done, is mission critical, but for a lot of different reasons. One is that it's just the right thing to do. You're seeing a patient, we have a duty that's uh, ethical, professional, moral, patient care related to create an accurate record of the encounter accurate documentation um, and we know that 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 medical necessity and documentation you know of that are the criteria upon which reimbursement is is, is going to ultimately be determined but taking that higher road of it's the right thing to do you can't leave a shift and not finish a chart. You can't fail to sign things. You can't fail to document and document accurately and completely. I think that it's also important, again, even billing aside, to create an accurate record because you need that for patient care. So let's say you're seeing a patient early in your shift and you're documenting, but it's garbage that you're putting in there. Well, what if at the end of the shift, the patient's still there and you want to just refresh your memory? You've seen 25 people that day. That one's been there six or eight hours. You want to go back and look at them. When you're looking at a meaningless chart, you're not really doing yourself a favor either because you're forgetting the nuances of what happened during that encounter hours earlier. So again, the record is integral to patient care and to billing. So taking a little bit of that higher road about why it's so important, it's also important for your hospital or staff privileges because charting and completeness is a requirement. Um, I happen to be in the medical legal field, and so um, I always look at the medical chart as your last chance to speak to the jury. So think about it. If you malpractice or If you don't malpractice, but there's still a lawsuit and you're trying to defend yourself, that chart is going to be blown up on an eight foot by eight foot slide in a courtroom two years, three years down the road. It's your last chance to speak to the jury. So let's have it be accurate and complete and thoughtful and really responsive to to documenting the patient encounter. So I think that there's so many reasons for it, but once you've made all of those nexus points, I, I think the last thing is to show that you're on the same team. You're trying to get them paid for their services. And some physicians, especially in emergency medicine, may just be hourly and they might not feel that they're skin in the game, but there's a bigger picture. If their group or their hospital isn't successful, they're not going to be there or if they're an outlier in their uh, reimbursement for whatever reason, they're not going to be there. So explaining to them just the importance of documenting completely and compliantly following the basic rules that we all know and the rules that you can help share with them when they have a mistake, it helps get them paid for their services so that their contribution is being recognized. So a little bit of a long-winded answer, but a lot of ways to get at it from a big picture at the ethical professional level to get it from the medical legal level, to get it from a pure compliance level, and then finally the cash in your pocket level. If you want to get paid for what you've done, uh, that chart's got to be accurate and complete.
1: Those are excellent tips, Dr. Bentley. I think that's definitely going to help a lot of folks. So tell us about your work at Elite Medical Experts and how practicing medicine for over 21 years prepared you for this.
0: Elite is a pretty interesting undertaking. So throughout My entire career in emergency medicine since the the 90s, uh, when I first started, um, I've been consulting on medical legal issues and having an understanding of those is so important to the practice of medicine in any field, because I've always felt that once you understand what it takes to have a claim of medical malpractice, you can use that information to prevent one. So I actually lecture on risk mitigation at the practice level um, so that people really understand practical things they can do day to day, not theoretical, but real things they can do to to mitigate their own risk. So having a long career in emergency medicine is a great step to, to formally jumping into the consulting business. So at Elite, we consult nationally and internationally, and it's anything at the intersection of medicine and law or medicine and business and law probably most relevant to to this talk today is that we handle thousands of medical malpractice cases for both plaintiff and defense. And the reason that we do that is to really maintain objectivity so that we're giving our best advice on either side of the, of the bar. And typically what we're doing in cases is not only consulting strategically so that people understand what's going on within a claim, but then we're aligning experts. And we have just chosen to align with university physicians and surgeons. Um, and so we're bringing professors of medicine in surgery as expert witnesses in cases across the country. So that's grown quite a bit over the years, and um, I think that it just stems from a career in emergency medicine, which is really probably the best field to enter consulting from because in emergency medicine, we see every other field. So we have experience in cardiology and gynecology and psychiatry and obstetrics so not that we're the experts in it per se but when someone calls and just needs to start getting foundation in a case we have a pretty broad
1: background
0: and i have a whole team of physicians and nurses here that work with clients so i think that's that's the answer on elite
1: Yes, your firm is awesome. I uh, can speak to that, fully endorse it. You guys have a phenomenal team. So we've all heard the adage, if it's not documented in the medical record, it didn't happen. And you alluded to this earlier, Um, in the medical legal world, but this could not be more true in that instance. So can you tell us about an experience where you've had a provider that did not adequately document and the consequences of this lack of documentation?
0: Yes, that occurs in so many medical malpractice cases that it is astounding. And it can be abbreviated as, as not documented, didn't occur. And attorneys use that uh, when you are on the stand, you're, you're under cross-examination, meaning the opposing attorney is asking you questions. And it's as simple as, well, doctor, it doesn't say that in the chart, does it? So imagine that with a couple of second pause following your couple of second pause and you're stuck because there's, there's not a great answer. The, the typical answer defensively is, well, I'm busy treating the patient. I can't document anything. But a good uh, mm-hmm. plaintiff attorney on cross will simply say, well, Doctor, let's agree that it's important to accurately document what occurred because that's the only record we have to go on about what happened on that actual day other than your memory. So no matter how you try and wiggle out of it, a great attorney can just bring it right back to the fact that if it's not documented, the presumption is it did not occur so, for example, in emergency medicine, one of the most common things we see is someone comes to the emergency department, they were maybe taken out the trash, there's a broken bottle in there, and they've uh, swung the bag and, you know, cut their leg or cut their hand. And they come in, and the documentation says, you know, a patient came in with an, you know, eight centimeter sharply incised wound on their, you know, lateral right leg, um, just above the ankle. And um, you know, wound is um, uh, uh, examined, cleansed, and closed with you know, 4-O proline, patient discharged. So imagine that it's just that, that simple, and, and that sounds great. But the reason it's coming back to bite you three years later is because you missed either a foreign body in the wound or you missed a tendon injury, both of which are incredibly common with incised wounds. So you're going to have to say in two or three years on cross, well, of course I explored the wound. And the plaintiff attorney is going to say, doctor, where, where did you document wound exploration or that uh, tendons visualized and intact or no tendonous wounds or no foreign body? Where is that? And you'll have to start going down a circular rabbit hole. Well, it's my usual custom and habit or I was busy treating the patient. I'm sorry, I didn't document it. And we don't want to get in that argument. There's just no point because against a strong plaintiff attorney, you won't win it. The point is that examination In this example of tendons or foreign bodies, those are pertinent positives, pertinent negatives. They're part of what you did and they're intrinsic to wound repair. So to not document it, you're just going to get buried. And I think that's really one of the problems we see nowadays with just the rush to get patients in and out or, you know, electronic health records or overuse of templated answers. Important things just get missed. So I can't stress enough the importance of documenting not only just accurately what occurred, but pertinent positives, pertinent negatives, pertinent steps. And then of course, your medical decision-making. Because remember, very often, three years down the road in a lawsuit, you're trying to explain what were you thinking on that night. And if it's not reflected in the chart, and we already know you've you've had a problem, that's why you're in the litigation crosshairs. Mm it's tough to back up. So the importance of documentation is key. And the last thing that I'll add to that because it's 2020 and we all have electronic health records, over-documentation is equally as catastrophic. So we can say not documented didn't occur, but over-documented and you're going to lose as well. What I mean by over-documentation, that's typically when you are using a template And you're dictating that, uh, for example, the uh, pedal pulses were normal and symmetrical bilaterally, and it's a patient who has no legs. Or you're doing an exam on a neonate, and you're saying they're alert and oriented, do person, place, and time. Or you're documenting cranial nerves 2 through 12 intact. And on cross-exam, I ask you, what's the name of the ninth cranial nerve and what's its function? And you can't answer that. Um, Those are all examples I've had. I've had in actual cases, I cannot tell you how many physicians have been asked literally even the name of a specific cranial nerve and couldn't recall it. And then when they were asked the function, uh, fewer got through that hoop or how they tested it, some imploded entirely. So the point is over-documentation can be equally catastrophic. So uh, we could go on for hours about that alone, but just how about if we just document accurately, compliantly, thoroughly intellectually, professionally,
1: and honestly, and I can call it a day with that. Doc, that is incredibly powerful. Your stories are, wow, the cranial nerves. We see that all the time. Wow.
0: Let me let me jump in right there. If you came in because um, you're playing baseball and you've uh, hurt a knee and you come into the emergency department and I document your physical exam, H-E-E-N-T, uh, chest, heart, abdomen, and then neurologic cranial nerves two through 12 intact. You've got a bad knee. Did I really check your swallowing sensation everywhere, pupillary function? I mean, it's, it's not even believable. And where it really implodes, again, it's on cross-examination. When, when you're there with the knee injury that's now in litigation and you have cranial nerves two through 12 intact, and they say, doctor, the patient will testify that you never checked their uh, reflexes. Or you never um, put a light in their eyes to check their pupils. And then the doctor has to say, well, yes, I did. I documented cranial nerves two through 12 intact. Um, And then the attorney says, doctor, you realize that the patient's wife was in the room and she's testified you didn't do it. Now it's two against one. And it's not even plausible that you did a full cranial nerve exam on someone with a broken knee. Why over embellish and lie in a chart? It's wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. And it's going to hit you over the head. So The question is, well, if you have to document a neurological exam, just document the correct exam, or you could even put cranial nerves normal as tested. Then at least you could go back and say what you did or didn't do at some later point. But when you commit to 2 through 12, you own those, and it's not true. So don't do it.
1: Be accurate. Yes, Doc, that is uh, so, so true. Wow. Great, great examples. So, what are your top three pro tips for navigating emergency medicine?
0: I guess I would say this. So, first is just appreciate emergency medicine to be grateful that we have it as a field, that we've got people that devote their lives to it and that it's there. And I know our profession gets thrown under the bus a lot because ERs are crowded and there's wait times and mistakes can happen. I look at it as an incredible resource for society. We should be grateful every day and we should be thanking pre-hospital providers, um, emergency physicians, nurses, staff and everyone else who's really devoted their life to it, particularly during this crazy pandemic. So if you know anybody in emergency medicine, give them a little shout out, bake them a loaf of bread or just do something nice because they really deserve it. I guess the second thing is, you know, we talked about getting the buy-in, you know, for the revenue cycle in emergency medicine. And I think what's sometimes interesting with the ER is that we are the only field that fundamentally we have zero control over the first step in the revenue cycle, and that's whether a patient can pay or not. So under federal law, we have to treat anyone who comes to the emergency department. And it's just kind of an interesting way of looking at it. You know, if you've got a private office anywhere, you get to pick and choose what insurance, um, who you treat, who you don't treat. It's like restaurants, you know, on the sign, if you, know, if you don't have a shirt or shoes, we don't have to serve you. Um, in the emergency department, we treat everybody regardless of their ability to pay. And I've had entire days where I worked on people, um, maybe who were non-citizens or had other issues, where I devoted an entire day to helping people that had no insurance. So it's just kind of interesting from that perspective. And I think you can maybe use that as your getting by in for the revenue cycle and explaining again, you know, remember tons of your patients can't pay um, or have limited ability to pay. So let's all be in this together and let's get paid when we can for what's right uh, and when we're owed it. So again, kind of working together, realizing how many people can't pay. So let's make that effort on the ones who can. And that might just be a different nuance with it. And my third thought is just realizing that, like we talked about emergency medicine, it's a tough field, but it's a field that sometimes has a lot of turnover. We'll see a lot of different staff coming through the ER. People are rotating through their PAs that are in and out. There's junior physicians and seniors. So I think just realizing that it's much more dynamic, much more prone to churn than you know, just a typical surgical practice or gastroenterology practice. So understanding you're gonna have different personalities, uh, different levels of engagement, interest, uh, resistance. So working again, just to understand that unique environment, but doing it in a constructive proactive way of getting buy-in and just pulling everyone together, I think is so important. And sometimes just learning people's background and their journey helps with that. So again, understanding we are inherently more dynamic, more changing, more stress prone, more night shifts than any other field. So give us a little slack, but um, I think with great feedback, great communication, it shouldn't be that hard to get us all on the same page. And we sure do appreciate
1: what you guys do. Those are awesome pro tips, Dr. Bentley. So what's next for you? You've got such an amazing background. What's next? I am thoroughly
0: enjoying elite medical experts. So I am sticking with that and we are definitely growing. We just partnered with the largest continuing legal education company in the country to bring uh, medical legal CLE. So I think that's exciting. Um, And I also consult really broadly in the field of informed consent and launched a new company earlier this year called Consent Spectrum, which brings informed consent uh, for the aesthetic industry, medical dermatology and plastic surgery. So I think my interest is definitely on this medical legal end of things, and I'm enjoying it. So I'm sticking with it right now and, and, and glad to be doing it.
1: It's exciting stuff. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Bentley.
0: Well, thank you for having me and appreciate all that you do as well. So keep the revenue coming in for everybody everywhere. We, we definitely need you.
1: Yes, I appreciate that. So be sure to connect with Dr. Bentley. Visit his website, EliteMedicalExperts.com. Thanks, Dr. Bentley. You are most welcome. I really enjoyed it. Take care. So it's time for this week's coding pro tip, and it's brought to you by Contempo Coding, which is an on-demand educational resource provider created for coders by coders. They specialize in affordable coding certification prep courses to help you accelerate in your career. Right now, they're offering an exclusive special to Alpha Coding Podcast listeners, and that's $125 off the Certified Risk Adjustment Coding Prep Course, as well as some great bonus content when you order through our affiliate website. This course has a 100% pass rate by the way. Visit our website alphacodingexperts.com and head over to the deals and discounts tab for a link to take advantage of this absolute steal of a deal. If you have a coding related question and would like it to be featured in one of our coding pro tips, please reach out to me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. So, this week's coding pro tip comes to us from Ohio. Hi, Tony. I'm a coder for emergency medicine and keep hearing all this stuff about 2021 EM coding changes. Do the upcoming EM coding changes apply to ER services? So, this is a good question. I've actually had a lot of folks recently approach me that have physicians that work in both the hospital and in the office. And it's important to note that ER and emergency medicine services are not subject to these changes, which means the same rules that apply currently. Currently, will continue to apply in 2021. Because ER services are reported with the 99281 through 99285, you'll notice the AMA does not include those codes in the updates. So that's a bit of good news. You do not have to worry about these codes. The bad news is for the physicians that work in both the hospital and the office setting, they are going to have to remember two sets of guidelines. So this is going to be tricky for them to navigate, which means coding professionals are going to be very busy and 2021 please remember to hit that subscribe button now so you never miss another episode also be sure to drop us a rating and review on itunes we really appreciate your support so this concludes today's episode until next week thank you for listening to the alpha coding podcast we'll see you next monday
0: for more information about medical coding and billing pro tips including how to hire alpha coding experts follow us on linkedin instagram Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at www.alphacodingexperts.com.